Right, okay. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. I think we're done on... Move on to one. ...on Hateful Eight. Both. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hope we can both agree on this. If you come in saying, it was boring, didn't do any killing till the last 20 minutes, mm. I'm going to reach through the computer and strangle you. <laughs> so, you, you saw us in the theatre, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Twice. Twice? Really? Damn. Yeah. So I, I was in France when it came out, in the middle of, middle of nowhere in France. Uh, oh, boy. So, so you know... I, Did you had, see it at all in theatres? Yeah, yeah I, I, no, I, I drove an hour oh. to, to the nearest theatre oh. to see, I think it was opening day. I don't know what, I don't know why, because I was like, I was interested to see it, but I wasn't prop like, I wasn't properly excited. I wasn't like, No, I, oh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't either. I wasn't like, oh, new Quentin Tarantino film, brilliant, because he's mm. been so hit or miss. I was like, and especially with the, the subject matter he was dealing with, I was thinking, this could be really bad. This, you know, yeah. the trailer didn't particularly inspire anything in me. You know, the subject matter was was dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, to say the least. So, yeah, I mean, I went in, I wasn't expecting much, but I was interested to see what it bloody do next. The lights go down, I was thinking, he's, he's going to fuck this up. This is going to be horrible. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I go through it. Um, I like it. I come out. I thought, oh, that was that was pretty good, actually. That was pretty good. And I, I think about it some more. I thought, oh, it was really good, actually. Mm. Uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, that might, you know, that's like a top five for me. Think about it, maybe a bit more. That's one of his best ones. That's one of you know top top two probably top two films. Then I watch it again, mm. and uh, yeah, it totally got me. And you know, in a way, in a way that it had just been it been eating away at my mind, and I watched it again, and I was like, "How on earth did I mm. watch this film and not think it was anything but?" I mean, I got, I'm going to use the word anything but a masterpiece. <laughs> it is something truly spectacular. Something, ugh, mm-hmm. well, I, I don't even have the words to express how uh, lovely I think this film is. Right. So, what what were you, what was your kind of your thoughts on this? It's uh, pretty much the same as you, to be honest. Um, the first time I saw it, I thought it was probably top five, and I really enjoyed it. Mm. And I've seen it three or four times now. And yeah, I think I think it's his his best. Yeah, I think. Well, it's but, the thing. Yeah. It's one of those ones I've just. Uh, it's it, it hasn't even been out a year, and I've watched it five times probably. I never watch a film mm. that much. The only film I've probably watched that much yeah. is is Shame by Steve McQueen. I, and I really love Shame by Steve McQueen. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and I, I think that there probably hasn't been, you know, a day or at least a week that's gone by when I haven't thought about it and haven't thought, mm. oh, I'd like to watch that again. Oh, I'd like, you know, yeah. I'd like to see that bit again. I'd like to see that bit again. Oh, actually, I'd like to see the whole thing again. It is, it is magical in a way. I think nothing he has made up until this point has been. So, uh... Should, yeah. should we get into the the nitty gritty? Do you want to start us off with some more kind of uh, specific points or kind of notes that you've got? This is um, like Django. I, I haven't got many notes on this one because, That's right. because I I like it. I like it so much. We'll just rave and rapture about it. It's fine. Well, you can start off, and I'll I'll just feed in because I, I think you're pretty passionate about this one. Yeah. Well, I think I think what what um, works as a Quentin Tarantino film about it is. 
it is everything he is kind of known for is all present and correct. You've got it all. You've got the the, the uber violence, the the vintage music uh, cues, the cine literacy, but it is all at the kind of the the most neatly integrated it has ever been. You know, mm-hmm. in in bastards like we we're saying, the cine literacy is really ah, kind of kind of to me, anyways, is grating because you're like, you know, why why are we talking about this? Whereas in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's a movie about movies. So, of course, we're talking, of course we're yeah, talking about sense. this and encountering all these things. Mm. And we're in the 60s. So, of course, all this vintage music is showing up. And it's about the Manson family. So, of course, we have, you know, the uber violence. So, it's all kind of, you know, it, it, it is neatly integrated, all of these things, in, in one story. For my money, these are the most psychologically compelling uh characters that that quentin has mm-hmm. ever created but you know but it also doesn't take place on a totally literal level these these people and locations and objects are are thematic stand-ins for concepts and ideas and wider groups of people so if you look at uh rick he's not just rick he's a stand-in for a certain mm-hmm. type of actor you know this kind of this this clean shaven mm-hmm. slick hair a more classical style of hollywood acting look, looking handsome and just saying things assertively he doesn't give a shit about character psychology or kind of changing or transforming yourself for a role it's not actually probably acting as we really know it now you know it it is a very bygone style of acting it's probably what we'd call now phoning it in (laughs) you know just standing there looking your best reading the lines and reading the lines yeah his his transformative thing is kind of made clear in the film that it's a small thing and a big thing because if you notice when, whenever uh, he's speaking to Cliff on set, Cliff always has a wig, a Rick wig, mm. and it's always the same wig every film they're on. He just he, he Rick never changes his look, so Cliff mm. can always just put on, you know, the same hairpiece, yeah. and he's Rick. And, and then mm. uh, you know, there's a scene in the Lancer trailer where where I think Sam Sam Wanamaker says. I want to give you a big droopy Zabata moustache. And Rick, oh shit. <laughs> you know, uh, he's he really reluctant to change how he looks because that's his thing. He is the handsome, harmless guys that girls in the 50s could kind of swoon over and their dad wouldn't feel too mm. threatened by it. He's, you know, he's a pretty boy. He's a leading man. He's, he's, a, he's a star. He's not an actor. He's not even like a big star. He's a TV star from five years ago in this. You know, his, his, his only capital is you know it's not acting it's cultural capital is you know jake cahill makes him valuable as a guest star to play the heel on 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 pilots and the less well-known bounty lawyers the less valuable he is so with with just this one character quentin is demonstrating a really clear understanding of the way hollywood tv stars from the 50s were treated what what they were just understanding Mm. why they were valuable why people liked them he tried to transition into movies kind of like steve mcqueen did because uh steve mcqueen was the star of wanted dead or alive which was a tv show like bounty law and then he went on and he became steve mcqueen but rick didn't pull it off and now he's found himself in this this new Hollywood. You know, his whole career mm. is based on people knowing who he is and the fact that he looks like a star. But he doesn't mm. look like a star anymore. You know, it's 1969. A star is Dustin Hoffman or a star is Dennis Hopper. Rick is, Rick is not that. They're, they're countercultural. So, so his appeal 
to the whole world of, of, of filmmaking has totally evaporated. He's never really had to act, so he doesn't know how to act. So why on earth would you cast Jake Cahill in anything? Or Rick Dalton, you know, in anything? Yeah. So this whole thing has kind of led to his character being this extremely neurotic person, which is kind of rooted in this identity as a star, not an actor. People are good stars because they are likable and they're handsome. And people like watching them. But Rick wasn't a good star. So this, his identity as a star is tied into his own self, sense of self-worth. Was I a bad star because I am unlikable and worthless? And you see this kind of manifesting itself in these outbursts and, and fits of self-doubt. Yeah, and, like and in, the, in the trailer. Yeah, most memorably in the trailer, uh, you know, that he has. And this kind of alludes to, to an idea of, of bipolar disorder because he has these mm. intense mood swings, these fits of rage, and then he sees Roman Polanski and he's like, oh, brilliant, you know, I'm living next to Roman Polanski. He's a, a very tortured, neurotic guy. He's a bit of an asshole, but, but he is someone who is psychologically suffering at the behest of this filmmaking system. I've got this kind of theory about these two male leads, Cliff and Rick, that they both suffer from what now would be called, you know, a mental illness. You know, mm. Rick's got, bi- or might have, bipolar disorder. And, and Cliff has got, you know, he's effortlessly cool, but I think this coolness is rooted in a darkness. He is a guy who's happy to yeah. chill out with no personal ambition, you know. But he also has this very violent streak. Cliff's coolness is a detachedness. He drifts through the worlds without any stake or connection besides rick and it's kind of i think like it's kind of sociopathy but my theory is it's a sociopathy rooted in uh ptsd because there are these these mentions of him being in the war and and he has this propensity for sudden you know brutal violence without hesitation or or, or guilt or remorse or anything the, the mentions of him being a war hero and how do you become a war hero you either kill a lot of people or you suffer near death so so and it's also kind of hinted at that he has a death wish because they say you know rick says to randy hey you know you can do anything to him you can you can run him over with a lincoln you can throw him off a fucking roof you know you you have to have some kind of low value of your own life or just a detachedness to be able to do that i think yeah. You know, and and also when Rex breaks into the house at the end and points a gun at him, Cliff doesn't react. He laughs in his face and, you know, ah, points his fingers at him. He's come to terms with the inevitability of his his death a long time ago. You know, he says, it ain't my time, man, when he survives the attack. You know, death is just something that that <clears throat> happens. And to, to Cliff, it means nothing, which is how he can be so cool because he doesn't fear anything. He's almost the polar opposite of Rick. You know, Rick spends every minute of every day fearing and fretting about obsoleteness or, or death. And Cliff just, through his time in the army, has kind of acknowledged that life is finite and, and fragile. And, and death to Cliff has kind of ceased to mean anything. So just off the bat, mm. I was like, you know, when I came to do this, I was like, I'll just write some, a few notes on the characters. And they're so you know, to me at least, so complex and involving and interesting that I, you know, my notes are just all of this because yeah. what he's done here is he's created these characters to me that, that hopefully, if anyone has any sense, are going to be immortal film characters because not only are they great fun to watch and really funny and really cool, they are complex at a level that maybe only Jackie Brown was. And Quentin didn't write the characters in Jackie Brown. So for me, straight away, that's mm. you know something that stands out. So I've I've gone on for ages. What you know? What do you think of these 
these guys. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I think the fact that you, you, you've got so much to say about just like Rick and, uh, and Cliff says a lot about um, the depth that is in this compared to everything else he's done, really. Mm. Um, and like you said, you still get the um, things you come to his films for. Yeah. It still has the same kind of feeling. You get the same um, rewards from it. But it is infinitely more, yeah, complex. Um, and there's a depth to characters that um, none of the other characters in this film has had. And I think that's because he's playing to his strengths here. Yeah. He knows he knows sixties uh, Hollywood. He knows L.A. He knows cars, soundtracks, actors. Maybe he, in a way that he doesn't know Nazis. He's he knows these people. He he has actually interacted with and met these people, and you can tell. Yeah, he's a, he's at home here. Yeah. Um. It's not just like he's not writing a film character. He's trying to write real people. And which results in really actual shows. characters. Yeah. Rather than um sort of headpieces for yeah, um, simulacrums or yeah which there's nothing wrong with i mean i think we both love characters like Django and schultz mm. and shoshanna and the bride but they're not the same they're not characters like these are characters um another great character that makes a return here is uh the cars um, oh cars. fantastic driving scenes here just effortless um yeah i don't even know how to describe them but they, they make me feel a particular <laughs> way the it's, cruising down the streets with the yeah, soundtrack it's just the... a bliss it's a pure kind of you know it's like like he's got a syringe and he's injecting dopamine straight into my brain it's just kind of pleasurable listening to these great songs looking at mm. these beautiful cars the sun uh you know and you're with cliff someone who doesn't doesn't fear anything you're just mm. having a good time there's no there's no pressure to do anything there's no stress you're just in the car watching the road signs fly by yeah, and that's the the moment when he's uh, driving away from um, from Rick's house, mm. and he's kind of speeding down those curvy roads, and he yeah. kind of emerges onto the main strip. The that's where I really realised, and I stopped for the first time and thought, he hasn't put a foot wrong yet. Yeah, like what is this? Um, what's what's this happening? Magic. That's... <laughs> yeah, no, that the whole Hollywood Boulevard thing is incredible. Just doing up the whole Hollywood Boulevard mm. practically for what probably. 30 seconds of film time yeah. combined. <laughs> it's, yeah. br- it's just amazing that he has this kind of... What he has in this film is an attention to detail that, that is really present. He's like, you know, yeah, Cliff's going to drive down the Hollywood Boulevard for a little transition scene. We'd, we'd best block off the whole boulevard and turn it into 1960, mm-hmm. just to be sure. And it totally worked. And he has the same thing on the film sets, you know. E- everything in the film sets is perfectly disciplined you know it's not just we're looking at these guys on the film sets it's it's the 60s into the 70s we're not doing westerns anymore things are kind of going more into the space age so in the background he has men in spacesuits walking around rather than cowboys he's paying attention to what's happening in the background of these shots more than anything else and it makes this really accurate involving portrait of of 1960s 70s la he's not shy about the gross details of it either you know it looks beautiful Mm -hmm. and gorgeous but you also have like the mac and cheese in a box and the dog food Mm -hmm. and these things that you know that are horrible yeah the the dinner preparation scenes as well i just i mean that's just such a a brilliant scene on its own it is literally brad pitt making his dinner he just mm. he makes some mac and cheese and he feeds his dog, who incidentally for me is the most beautiful, charismatic movie star of the last twenty years. You know, mm-hmm. Brandy the dog from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. 
she's she's going places. <laughs> I mean, I think she's a brilliant actor. She'll whimper, you know, was that a whimper? Yeah. Lick, lick the lips, look ashamed, wag the tail. I mean, mm. you know, she, she's fantastic. Great and stuff. <laughs> it's just these, these characters are so likeable to a degree, but com- complex enough that you can just spend time with them and just hang out mm-hmm. and you go through the everyday rituals and you just find the joy in the everyday elements of yeah. being part yeah. of something that is magical and that magical and thing is movies. You, you feel that um, these characters actually exist and when you're looking at them, you, you've dropped in on a real moment that you're just lucky to witness. You don't see um, Quentin's puppeteer hand yeah. coming into the frame and moving them in a way that um, entertains him. It just feels like we're witnessing something. He's... Uh, yeah. He's pointed our, our view towards something which is real and it's happening. And, yeah, um, or, or, you know, more melancholically, happened. I think, you know, that's another mm. key to the film is that it is, it is a melancholic film because these are people that, you know, quite literally in Sharon Tate's case, don't exist anymore. These, mm. these are, are bygone people who were alive and were part of something beautiful and magical and were part of the, the, which, yeah, which the movies that we love and we enjoy and they're part of the history but they were also alive which, that's a real melancholic edge that the film has a, a time that necessarily came to an end just as we reached the kind of end of this story yeah exactly i think a, a great scene is when she's uh sharon tate's driving along and there's the um um what, uh, which song is it? It's, um, I can hum it, but I don't want to. What Wait, it called? I got the soundtrack yesterday. I'll yeah, read you off the title. Pull up the soundtrack. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, was it California Dreaming? California Dreaming. Yeah, yeah. that scene. Yeah. All right, so I'll, st- I'll start again. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the scene when uh, Sharon Tate's driving along listening to and, well, and California Dreaming's playing. Oh, my God. I think then you just get the sense that it's all coming to an end. And obviously you don't... We, we can go into spoilers, right? Yeah. People know what happens at the end of the story, or well, they think and, they do. <laughs> before you've watched it, you know where this. You kind of think you know where this is going, and yeah. there, I just got this idea for the first time. It pulled me out, and it was like, um, oh, this is going to come to an end soon. Yeah, and so, and then at the end, he he imagines a future that that never did or could exist. And I think yeah. that um, the way he reinvents history here just shows such a sophistication compared to. What we've seen in um, Inglourious Bastards. He's come such a long way in those, what is it, 10 years? Yeah, let's talk about Sharon and let's talk about that sequence you raised with the California Dreaming. Mm. I mean, the leaves of, the, the lyrics of California Dreaming, you know, all the leaves are brown. Mm. I could be safe and warm if I was in LA. It's this, I mean, the music choices in this, I mentioned it earlier, they are perfectly chosen. They are absolutely mm. perfectly chosen. Because you have that sequence, which is, I wish I was back here. I wish we were in this happier, innocent time. And, you know, obviously you know the story. Before Sharon Tate was murdered. I wish, I mm. wish this didn't have to happen. I wish we could go back to a time where this person, who is by all accounts and by the movie's account, just absolutely lovely. Just mm. kind, generous, the life of the party, vivacious... You know, and some and someone who, like we were saying earlier, was a person. She wasn't a headline. Mm. She wasn't Sharon Tate the star. She was Sharon Tate the person. And we see that when she goes into the theatre and she 
she just she sits down you know it's again it's just a hangout thing it's like oh yeah uh, we're just gonna watch her go to the movies just a day in life mm-hmm. she's gonna go to the movies and and she she sits down and she's watching her movie that she's in and her first entrance you know as soon as people start laughing you know that smile just crosses Margot Robbie's face mm-hmm. and you know this is something when I sat down to first watch this I never thought would happen yeah, it tingles in your spine. You start to tear yeah. up, you know, because this is a person who is his part of this, you know, amazing industry of making movies that the the we love to watch. And and she's actually feeling appreciated on one level, but on another level is making people happy. Yeah. She's making people laugh, <clears throat> and she she clearly from Margot Robbie's excellent performance, she loves to make people laugh and make people happy. And it just, I was, I was talking about this to someone else the other day, but, but mm. if Quentin Tarantino had made this film and had, you know, how lovely Sharon Tate is, how wonderful she is, and then ended it with her getting brutally murdered, I, I would be so angry because, mm. you know, it would be abs- just heart-wrenching because, you know, the, the whole... I mean, the whole film has a melancholic edge, but it would it would veer into sadistic if he had done that. And I'm exploitation. I'm very I'm very 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 happy he didn't. Again, just another point on the music cues. Uh, Paul Rivera and the Raiders uh, song "Hungry," uh, mm-hmm. which Sharon is playing in in her house. She's talking to Jay. They're hanging out, and Manson comes to the front door, and yeah. the song is this really kind of like jo- you know jovial song about you know. Uh, I'm horny, will you be my girlfriend? You know, just like classic 60s stuff. And then it goes into this bit after the chorus. You know, the whole thing is, I'm, you know, I'm hungry like a wolf, you know, like that. You know, I want to I eat you. It's like this carnivorous habit. You know, it's kind of playful in the context yeah. of the scene. Sharon's dancing, Jay's dancing. And then after the, the chorus, it goes into this menacing bass bit. I could almost taste it, baby. And sweet as wine. And that menacing bass bit, it changes to that the moment Manson sees Sharon. And it's just... He's not even... He hasn't even made anything in a classical sense, you know. He's got a song. He knows the song. He knows the material. He's put them together. And it's just this marvellous bit where the scene goes Mm. from being, oh, we're having a dance around, to suddenly, dead serious, we know where this is going. (laughs) Did you like uh, Margot Margot as, Sh- as Sharon? What were your have you got any thoughts on? Yeah, I think she's she's great, like the best she's been since um, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I mean she's had some career yeah. in seven yeah. years. I mean she's <laughs> she's she is a genuine star, you know, not quite on the level of Brandy, but but she is a star. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think she's she's like perfect um, in, in this role. Yeah, I mean um, she, she's fundamentally like a lovely. Or seems like a lovely person. She has a smile that can like mm. light up a room, which I think is exactly, exactly. what you needed for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and n- now I, c- I can't imagine anyone else. No. Um, it's not like the uh, Adam Sandler thing where I kind of yeah I can see that. I'd like to. That's a that's a movie I'd like to see. Sandler is uh, Sandler's Tate is like Jack and Jill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think actually that's a good point you raised about the the casting what ifs. Because th- for me, this has no casting whatevs. Everyone no. is spot on. Well, once you've once you've heard it, 
Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. It's yeah. Like, yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. Who else? It's, it's the same with Brad Naturally. Pitt and Leo. It's like, yeah, we're going to put Brad and Leo mm. together and Brad's, Brad's a stunt double. Because they were both stars from the 90s, right? Heartthrobs. Leo was the soft, soft boy who did the love stories. Mm-hmm. Brad was a bit more of the tough guy. It's perfect. It's brilliant. It shows, a, mm-hmm. it shows a meta understanding of who these actors are and what roles they are good in. And, you know, Zoe Ball as the stunt coordinator. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's a nice bit of, like, cameo casting. Margaret Qualey as Pussy is brilliant. I think she's really good in it. Really kind of uh, creepy with this... this uh, Anarchic. Threatening, almost, sexuality to her. But, yeah, all, all the casting in it was... Uh, Mm. Was absolutely spot on. What about what about Damien Lewis as uh, Steve McQueen? Damien Lewis as Steve McQueen was great because it's one of those things. that's in the film where you're like, he just he just wanted Steve McQueen in the film. But Damien Lewis is such good fun as mm. Steve McQueen. I don't really mind because they they look yeah. So I similar. kind of I'm willing to indulge him uh, his indulgences in this one more than in the absolutely. They're the ones that kind of pisses me off, and this is like yeah, more please, Quentin. Yeah. Well, there's the rumoured four-hour cut that he's teased mm. with releasing, which I, you know, I want to see, but I'm also worried that it'll be too much, but you never mm. know. I mean, I think what's... This is probably... Like, some people probably say this is his most ill-disciplined film, because for the first... Yeah, but I, I don't mind yeah, here for some reason. First two hours, like, nothing happens, but it's done so affectionately. It's about, you know, love for these people is, is what, what it's all about, so it doesn't matter mm. that it's just... You know, hanging out, listening to pop music, going for a little drive, doing a bit of Western stuff. I I love mm. that sort of thing. You know, should we talk a little bit about uh, the ending? Yeah, sure. on it because I think you know we all we know where it's going. This film and it really it plays you, but in a way that isn't totally cynical. It's not trying to be like, oh, you know what's happening next? Oh, we're just coming up to that bit. Or, or in a way that's, you know, feels like horribly tugging at your heartstrings. It kind of, it does this thing where it does the account of the day. It has Kurt Russell. Right, with the voiceover. Yeah, doing yeah. a voiceover. And he's, he's got times. It says, you know, at 7.40, yeah. everyone did this, everyone did that. And what that reminded me of watching it is that's, that's a police account. You know, that's an account of the events. Mm. And, you know, that thing is pointing you in the direction of you know what has happened he's speaking in the past tense as well what has happened is predetermined what you are about to see cannot be stopped you know this is someone who has a report blow by blow of the night and it's telling you mm-hmm. and then what you think is going to happen does not happen <laughs> and it's actually probably a different police report but that whole thing running throughout the night you have this burning sense of of horror and terror thinking oh my god are we going to go through with this i i want to use it actually as an example of how good the film is as flip-flopping between tones and moods as such kind of confidence and skills you know it it plays you so well as an audience between making you know laugh shriek scared you know everything because you know a very clean example of it is the scene in the trailer where leo is smashing everything up and he's going you know, eight whiskey sours, you know, you're laughing your head off. It's, one, it's probably one of the funniest scenes ever, for my money. I think he's absolutely brilliant in it. <laughs> and he turns to me and he says, if you don't get these lines right, I will blow your brains out tonight. And, you know, theatre I was in, even in French cinema, you know, everyone's speaking, you know, French people are getting the subtitles. But they're laughing, you know, Leo's going crazy, and then whew, 
dead silence on I'll Blow Your Brains Out. And that was mm. that was one of the moments, first time watching it, I was like, this is this is something special. Getting that response from an audience where everyone's, uh, you know, uproariously laughing and then... But, but the ending, I think, plays it just <clears throat> incredibly well. So you've got, mm. you know, the last 30, 40 minutes. They're coming back to LA. You've got Out of Time playing. So you're smiling. It's a, good, it's a fun song, right? And then you've got the Super 8 footage of Sharon Tate and his friends. And you're listening to the lyrics. You're out of time. Whoa. <laughs> all, of a, all of a sudden, things are, are very kind of melancholy. And it's a sign of, you know... Mm. This is it. This is this is the end. This is the last day of her life, and then you you know, you you're feeling sick as the night goes on, and you've got this this mm. report of then this happened, then this happened. You're like, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. And then there's this moment where, it's just a small thing by Margot, but it's done with so finely. It's in the El Coyote, and she's sitting at dinner with Jay and everyone mm. and they're talking and they're talking about something and Sharon's kind of out of the conversation she's not paying attention and you've got Kurt Russell on the voiceover yeah. and he says you know Sharon was feeling especially pregnant tonight it was the hottest mm. night of the year and just that bit of kind of I don't know what it is about hottest night of the year but there's something about it and then Margot just reaches up and she touches her neck and, and kind of turns her head as the camera yeah, yeah, pans into her and that was the first time I watched it that was the first time I cried at a Quentin Tarantino movie. I didn't. Mm. I didn't cry in the theater time. First time I watched it, the, the in the movie theater scene. First time I watched it, I do now. But but the first time mm. I watched it, that moment, I did not expect that at all. You know, it's really melancholy. Uh, and then Cliff goes to walk his dog, takes the cigarette. We're having mm-hmm. a good time, and then Cliff walks out of shot, and the Manson family car comes in, and, Pulls in, yeah. and you're back at this mind-bending horror of what is about to happen mm. and then rick goes out and tells them all off when you're laughing again and it's just this this back and forth of how he how he plays with you and then mm. and then finally you get to this kind of okay now they're coming into the house the music's playing you know you have that kind of funny bit where brad pitt's licking the dog food and stuff like that the music is playing though and they're coming up through the yard and it's okay this this is it we're gonna see cliff bite it and then uh you have the fight which is just absolutely all over the place in terms of how you're Carnage. feeling. One minute you're like, ooh, ah, ah. And then the next minute mm. you're laughing. Because, you know, you've got the flamethrower at the end, which is such a ridiculous mm. moment that you, you have to laugh at it. And then you have Cliff and Rick saying goodbye, which just makes your heart swell. You know, you're a good friend. You know, I'll bring you yeah, bagels tomorrow. We'll look after Brandy. Mm. A really, it's such a small thing that they do. It's just, you know, you're good to me. But it, mm. it just... It feels so much. You know, it feels so big. And then you have Jay and, Jay and Rick at the gate. There's a few laughs there. But then he makes your heart swell again when Jay recognises Rick and says, oh, that's the flamethrower from 14th and McCluskey. And you see mm. Leo's reaction. He's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> you, know, you know who I am. And, and, and then the PA comes on. And I'm a goner at that point. You know, you just have mm. this kind of the camera pans to the PA and before she speaks you know that's that's Sharon on the PA and it's just you know I'm 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 crying at that point and it's just something I did not Mm. expect from this film it is such a beautiful ending that plays so keenly with your emotions Mm. 
throughout. You're, you're almost emotionally exhausted after that last 40 mm. minutes because you've, you've been going through the full range of emotions. At least I was. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, me too. So I think everyone in the, in the theatre was really... Yeah. I mean, it, everyone was vocal, gasping and yeah. laughing. Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a feeling film, which is very strange. You know, it's a sensational film. Um, but yeah, this kind of... What do you think the ending means? You know, what, what's your kind of interpretation on the ending? Yeah, just uh, imagining... Um, I guess it's asking you, like, what, what would have happened? Not just, I mean, what would have happened to to Sharon Tate? Where would her career have gone? Where would her life have gone? What would have happened to Roman Polanski? Because obviously, I mean, this is before any of the... Any of the, yeah. Controversy The dodgy business, and yeah. The darkness really came in in the 70s. And I guess this is imagining, you know, what would have happened if if things hadn't got so so dark so suddenly? Because I think Quentin mm. sees that, yeah. that particular night as kind of an integral shift in, no, um, that's absolutely right. Yeah. In the innocence of of Hollywood. No. Or I... the um, the complacency of the Hollywood studio system, which suddenly got shifted around and was just starting to change with you know Easy Rider and all these things. No. What if it, what if things hadn't got so dark so fast? Um, yeah. Which is why it's. Uh, I mean, it's not just sweet and um, thought provoking because of Sharon's story, but because of the whole story that it implies after that. What happens after this? And what happens yeah. to our characters here? What happens to uh, history of, of films in Hollywood? And um, yeah, it's no, you 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 put that really uh, really beautifully there. I think, yeah, that that idea of of that thing you said about the integral shift, I think, is absolutely right. It's a, it's this choice he's made of this. This can be used as a symbolic moment that Hollywood lost its innocence and became far more cynical. You mm. know. In, in, in what it would do. And also that the Hollywood system, you know, maybe didn't make the best films, but it employed a lot of people and a lot of people had their lives invested in it. I mean, it still carried on, you know, mm. the Godfather was a big studio production, Star Wars, obviously. But, but, yeah. but this idea of big, you know, of making a lot of big films a year, not one big tentpole films. The, that's the model mm. now is you make uh, Avengers 4, that's all the money Disney get. Well, not all the money, but that's what Disney is. The lion's share. Yeah, is pinning yeah. its money on. Whereas in those days, you would have, you know, lots of big films a year because nothing was making exponentially more than anything else in terms of a studio produced film. So you had, and then what it does is it says, yeah, a lot of people work on these films, and a lot of mm. people gave a lot to these films, and this is about yeah. them and saying thank you, and you know that loss of innocence and encroaching cynicism of the 70s mm. is, a, is a tragic thing because we forgot yeah, people like Rick and people like Cliff and people like Randy and, you know, and shows like Lancer. They're not canonized. They're not lionized. They're forgotten, but they are part of history. They are part of film history and they are part of our, you know, DNA mm. as, as an art form. Although there are these uh, big personalities and you know huge stars um, that everyone knew their names, it was a much more kind of like mechanical, maybe mm. pragmatic affair. Um, you see that in in that great scene when uh, when Cliff is we first see his trailer and you see the drive-in movie theater and then the mechanical machines yeah. working behind it. Um, That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. 
celebrating these people that were yeah more workers than artists um striving for some kind of enlightenment yeah and clip literally lives behind the movie theater he lives behind the screen yeah 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 so it's just a look yeah a look at these people who we forget sometimes that the people who make all this glorious art for us Mm. are human beings and every one of them is incredibly valuable to that process yeah, and we talk about like uh, auteur directors and single mm. singular visions and stuff. But there's that really nice phrase from that um, Kubrick documentary about a film worker. Film worker, yeah. And these people are film workers. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, it's just the grind. It's just their job. It's just like what they get up and do in the morning. And, and this is kind of like a celebration of them, mm. all of them, the actors, stunt the men, stunt devils, the the gaffers. Yeah, um, everyone gets a yeah. shake. Yeah, I, I I mean I love that interpretation of the ending. I've got kind mm. of, of, of a similar thing uh, in my notes, uh, but it's also for me, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that it is, it is a perfect ending and it is happy and it is sad. You know, it's, mm. it's a what if, but it's also happy because where it gets his recognition. Uh, mm. and, and within that what if, there's that kind of, you know, Rick is being welcomed by that new generation and that feels really good. You know, he's being recognised and being valued by people who are, you know, movie lovers and in, in this industry that's infamously kind of fickle and cruel. But it could also mean that he has been welcomed by these these angels. You know, he's he is metaphorically he's gone. He he doesn't type he doesn't exist. This type of star doesn't exist anymore. They were a casualty of the sixties, much like Sharon, and this meeting of Jay and Sharon and Abigail and Steve and Wojcik and Rick is a meeting of ghosts. They are all kind of inaccessible remnants of Hollywood's history. And there's such a kind of melancholic beauty to that ending of, you know, you have the the the, the theme from Bean. What's it? Judge Bean. Judge Roy Bean mm-hmm. playing as, as the camera kind of sweeps up. And the camera doesn't move with Rick. It moves above Rick. Rick, you know, is leaving us and going into the house. Mm. He's gone. And just that small element of blocking and camera movement, you know, he's leaving us. They're all leaving us. You know, it's a really lovely uh, ending. So uh, the sequence that everyone talks about in the film, kind of, that's, that's got the most notoriety is the, the Spawn Ranch scene. And I think what's interesting about hmm. that film is that a lot of Quentin's films are kind of genre, or at least more recently, a genre pastiches. So Death Proof is a slasher car film. Kill Bill was martial arts, mm-hmm. then uh, Western. I mean, it's kind of a different genre for every w- one she kills. It's kind of hit his take uh, on, a, on a different type of film yeah. each time. Kind of like that um, Kubrick thing. Yeah. It's like, uh, this, one's a, this one's my sci-fi. This is point, my yeah. period piece. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually isn't, apart from probably that Spawn Ranch scene, which I would say is... A horror, you know, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe it, it's this. It's pretty it's horrible, this, yeah. You know, dirty, um... run-down old farmhouse with with dying animals and dark corridors, but also this mm. kind of harsh yellow sunlight in it. And these, you know, maybe the camera work isn't very Texas Chainsaw, but the whole kind of the mm. scenery. But that's and a good point about is, is to me Texas Chainsaw crossed with a western. Yeah. The same kind of disintegration of the um the American supposed values as well that you mm. see in that where it's kind of like um yeah alternative well it's it's a place that that once was um kind of like a key destination of um 
America, of uh, American movie making and stars yeah. and everything, and which has now kind of disintegrated into a a place where where bad folk <laughs> where bad folk live. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's almost like, yeah, a satire for, for all of Hollywood. You've got this old set that used to be, you know, providing jobs, shooting films all day, mm. every day. People would, you know, the guy who owned it would live there, you know. Mm. It was, and, and now it's been taken over by hippies like Dennis Hopper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, paired with Rick, the Spahn Ranch scene in this disintegrated Western uh, town, also signposts... I said the very strange thing. Also, signposts a change <laughs> in westerns from in you know Rick's day being about the handsome That's... good man who kills the gross bad man to becoming more amoral and and also less American. I mean, you think mm. of the the westerns of the sixties. I mean, the reference in this film, they're Leone, they're Corbucci, they're they're Italian, they're shot in Spain. Everyone's Italian. speaking yeah. their own language. Um, Western is an inherently American genre, but, you know, most of the great 60s mm. Westerns were made by Italians, and they ended up doing it, arguably, better than Americans. And I would actually argue that, still, to this day, foreigners are better at making Westerns than Americans. I mean, if I look in the past, you know, year or couple of years, w- what have you got? You've got, uh, earlier this year, True History of the Kelly Gang, which is uh, an Australian Western, and then uh, Bacurau, which was a Brazilian uh, Western, and then a little further back, you've got uh, The Proposition, which was another Australian uh, Western. The most kind of high-profile American Western in, in recent years has been um, Hell or High Water, but that was directed by a Scotsman, so isn't kind of, you know, exactly an American production. I think looking at the current... Uh, class of american filmmakers making westerns at least that i can think of the only two that come to me that have a solid grasp on the genre and make interesting films within the genre are quentin with the django and hateful eight and then s craig zala with uh, burn tomahawk which i really really loved i might be wrong about this but i think it's intercut or is at least near the scene where um where rick is acting in the western which is kind of still quite an old-fashioned kind of um idea of the the western genre whereas what rick is doing is actually kind of he's actually being a a western hero well cliff cliff yeah 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 no that's a really good idea of of actually you've got old westerns with rick shooting Mm. one then you've got more newer westerns with uh cliff and spawn yeah because i mean cliff i like cliff I don't think he's a particularly good person. <laughs> he's kind of like a good amoral drifter Western hero, kind of like the man with no name or someone. He is not a kind of cut and dry hero like the characters in uh, Rick's shows would be. Now, it's a, re- a really interesting idea of contrasting those two styles. I mean, also what's good about it is it's, it's a scene that you think is going to go somewhere terrible, mm. and it does only about an hour later when they actually come back together. But but yeah, that, that idea of having these elements being present, it's not just like, oh, one day the Manson family showed up. These kind of elements were existing and were building towards this big climactic blowout. So you're, you know, the whole time you're watching it, you're aware that, you know, like we were saying earlier, that this has to end at some point. But it's not just because we know what happened. It's because you have these elements and rick is becoming less popular and more neurotic and you know 
he's having to go out to Italy and he's being informed that his career is dying. Yeah. You know, it's not just that we know what happens. There is a, a basic kind of storytelling level thing through kind of musical cues, through dialogue, through performances that, that we are made aware that this is the end. You know, this is the mm. end of something. Right, so I think that's probably enough ranting okay. and raving about uh, Once Upon a Time. Uh, we're going to try and do what we did in, in the Paul uh, video, and we're going to do a ranking, but I don't think either of us have written our ranking yet, so it's going to be totally off the dope. Yeah. I think this will probably be less surprising than the Paul one, because I think it's more clear which ones we favour and which ones we don't favour so much. But let's uh, let's okay. see. I might just be a provocateur. I'm f- I'm feeling provocative. Okay. All right. This may not be totally true, strictly, but it'll uh, stir up some some controversy. Okay. Right. Okay. The grand listing right. breakdown. I think there might be some some interesting approaches from both of us in this. Do you think it would be fair to say we're both yeah, taking some uh, yeah some strange angles? Right, should we start start at right. number ten? I'm sure there'll be no surprises with number ten. What's what's your Death number proof. ten? Death proof, yeah. I think that's we've made it kind of clear, I think, why we're so unimpressed with death proof. Yeah. You know. Largely ambivalent, it, really. Yeah. I mean it's it's a boring yeah. film, I think, you know. Well it's not being aggressively irritating or occasionally threatening in the case of that car chase. It's not interesting. There is very little That's to true. hang on to in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, character or even pleasure. Mm. You know, it's 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 not fun, I would yeah. say, until you get to that last uh, stretch. Agreed, yeah. Um, okay, what, what have you got at number nine? Number nine. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. Me too. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. It's, this is going much like the Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. one. Or was that Radiohead where we both had the same... We had the same, yeah. The same... The same things. Yeah, Kill Bill Volume 2. Slower, duller, should have been one movie. Mm. Yeah, a weird mixture of trying to score emotional resonance, but also um, <clears throat> doing a pastiche yeah. and having this kind of speechifying, verbose dialogue. All right, you number right. eight. It's Bill, Bill 1. I've also got Bill 1. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're doing, yeah. we're doing well here. I think it is important that it's one step higher, though, rather than a draw. It is, yeah. It's that much better, but it's still a mess. It's, it's a mess. It's a more fun mess, though. There's more entertaining stuff in there than there is in Kill Bill 2, which kind of has no, nothing that really stands out in the mess. It's all just kind of brown. It's brown sludge, I would say, Kill Bill 2. Mm. Even in its colour palette, it's brown sludge. Whereas Kill Bill 1 is mm. like... I don't know, like, you've got loads of slushies and you've just thrown them together and shaken them up. It's really, yeah, it's, it's really colourful as and a, high energy, but not if, good for you. If you're looking at it as a long film, it's, I mean, like an album, it's, it's poorly sequenced, I think. You don't get the, yeah. the right bits in the right order and it's kind of front-heavy as well. Um, yeah. Case could be made, it's his White Album, if the White Album was bad. Sure. Double album. A strange mixture of styles and aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Number seven. Inglorious. Okay, I've got Hateful Eight. <laughs> Curse you! <laughs> I've, I've said all I need to say on that, I think. 
This is this is unbelievable. Uh, I mean, much in the same way, I feel like I've said what I need to say about Inglorious. It's it's disjointed and uneven and uh, has digressions that kind of go nowhere. And the characters are a kind of confusing mix of whether they're, you know, sympathetic or colourful. You know, yeah, I, I need I need both in a good character. Yes, well, I can't say I'm entirely pleased with your list, but all right, well, go on then. What's right. number What's number six? Num- number six, I got bastards. Um, ah, okay. I got here in my notes, um, which I didn't see before. It's the first thing I, one of the first things I wrote after mm-hmm. I watched it, which is uh, inconsistent Nazi quilt, which I think kind of sums up my thoughts on that. A quilt is a nice yeah. idea, actually. Yeah, it's a, a patchwork, a real. All right. Well, you what do you got for five? I haven't said my six yet. Haven't you? Goodness of me. course. No, Django Unchained. Oh, okay. <laughs> Django Unchained is my sixth. Which, I mean, for me, the dividing line is probably in this list between films I like and films I dislike is is here. Is mm. between uh, seven and six. Because okay. I, I'm not too fussed about Inglorious, but I like Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think it does everything Inglorious and it set out to do, but, but way better and warmer and more human. Well, this this is where things maybe get a little spicy. I think my my five to two position are kind of freely shifted, and I've and I've, you know, they can move about a little bit, uh, and I've I've gone for controversy here because mm-hmm. it'll make good listening. And I've put number five just as my current feeling is Pulp Fiction. Ooh. I I mean I said last week why I don't like Pulp Fiction as much as other things. I think the Butch digression is really just uninvolving, and there's some really uncomfortable scenes in it i think the first hour and the last i don't know half hour are really good but i think there's there's stuff in it that for me just doesn't work as well as i think maybe it does for other people and i think its omnipresence as quentin's best film kind of irritates me because i i don't Mm. think it is okay all right go for it i've got jackie brown because um basically because Mm -hmm. I, i think it's largely good but uh uh, I don't have as much to say on it as, as the the ones higher up on the list. But mm-hmm. uh, it's probably more yeah. consistent than, than lots of the ones that come higher, but I just can't get really excited about it. That's fair yeah. enough. That's fair enough. No, I see where you're coming from. What's your number four? Four, I've got Reservoir Dogs. Explain yourself. Uh, basically, I, I like I like the ones that hire more. Um, but but I think it's it's, it's pretty That's good, <laughs> pretty pretty yeah. pretty good. Pretty 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 good. But I, I do think it's got some it's got some issues in there that get iron, ironed out even a few years later. Well, my number four is is you know I'm sure you'll be horrified to hear is the hateful eight because I just <laughs> I just find. The, you know, the the morality and the way he manipulates his audience in regards to these characters and their mm. kind of political, cultural signifiers to be really quite sharp. And I do, I find the mystery compelling and I think it looks gorgeous and I'm I'm here for the, the demystification of the American myth. And I think the way he does it and juxtaposes it with this this letter, this Lincoln letter, this kind of flowery ideal of America versus the bloody, gruesome reality is uh, is interesting to me and it works for me. Okay, you, you, you have made me think about think about it more. Maybe I need to yeah. watch it again. Right, who is it now? It's you. Oh, see, this is really hard. 
My t- my two and my three are, are just they're they're mm. battling it out. I really don't know. I really don't know. Fuck it. Uh, three Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because I think it's it's as aside from me, my number one spot is the most consistent of his films. Like you said, I really like Max Cherry and I really like Jackie Brown and I love De Niro's performance as this kind of oaf. Uh, and Odell's character, I think, is, you know... Re- I think what he gets is he gets that balance between funny and sinister that Waltz was aiming for in Bastards, but he totally hits it. Yeah. And um, I think it's it's a good love story. It's a good mystery. I love the choice of the really unexpected protagonist. I love the reverence it has for Pam Greer and black exploitation films and the kind of modern twist it puts on it. Mm-hmm. Um but like you said, it's not as keenly memorable or distinctive as some of his other works. Yeah, I think, which is which is why I I was going back and forth for that. But you know, for mm-hmm. being two or two or three. All right, you three. Pop fiction. Oh. Yeah. That's more like it. Okay, I was worried you were gonna. No. I had an idea of what you were gonna go for for the top three, but no. that's good. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> it just improves upon. Reservoir Dogs. It's got a, a feel of his kind of like mid nineties films. I think that's the better of the two. I, I do agree about the middle section, but I just think it's got the only it's the only other film that um comes near that kind of like magic that I think we both think uh Hollywood has. Well you can't really explain why, but it, it kind of makes you excited and Yeah. Uh, invigorated. It has that kind of charm to it. Um Yeah. No, that's perfectly right. Which is hard to quantify but it but it's there. And it's uh, people still see it, I guess. I can understand people feeling that magic. You know, it's not a film for me that has that magic, but I can understand why someone would be drawn mm-hmm. be drawn to it because it, you know, it's a hangout movie in a very similar way that actually Hollywood is. Yeah. Okay, that works. Uh, oh, so I need to. So I need to start with my two now. Right? You do your two. Yeah. Yeah. So got Django. Django. It's a yeah. good choice. I'm glad you didn't yes, go for Pulp Fiction number two. I, no. I think Django's, I admi- I admire Django's better. More. Yeah, no, Jang- I mean uh, Django is a lot of fun. Yeah, and that's what that's why it's there really, just because mm. it's and I've seen it so many times now, but I always enjoy it. And it's just such a like when people talk about like Star Wars being like a kind of like journey film that you just watch because it's so much like it's swept up in it and taken to another place. Forget about that. But Django is a film like that where yeah. you you start from the beginning and it's just completely pulls you in and takes you on this journey from different places and some of it's shocking, some of it's really nasty and it's obviously you know, it's got important things to say, but ultimately it's just um it's just a fun not just a fun, but it's um Yeah. It's a good time. It's a journey. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's it you said it very well. It's it's funny, it's nasty, and it's just it is a movie that you can watch, I think, crucially, and not know who Quentin Tarantino is and have a good time, mm. which I think maybe doesn't go for maybe any other film on the list. Any other film on the list, That's you true. kind of have to be like, oh, new Quentin Tarantino, I know what he's like, I know kind of what I'm in for. Whereas Django yeah. actually works much, could work much better with the general audience, which I think is why it was one of his, you know, I think it was his most highest grossing film until I would think uh, so, yeah. Hollywood. But yeah, that's yeah. a good choice. 
Yeah, my number two spot is Reservoir Dogs. And I think... It, it, you, I used to be a really big fan of it, but actually rewatching it for this, I realised there are some bits that sit less comfortably with me. I mm -hmm. think the kind of... Uh, some of the flashbacks go on for maybe a, a tad too long. And I think some of the the use of racial and homophobic epithets yeah. doesn't work in the film's favour at all. It's not kind of something you can either brush past, really, because it's done with almost a kind of mean-spiritedness. Mm. Um, but I think, crucially, it has a really involving, engaging mystery story that, you know, throughout... I am wrapped up in, even having seen yeah. it before. Mm -hmm. I think it's, and it's a really bold kind of debut statement. And for that, I, mm. I admire it hugely. And it has that grindhouse charm of doing a lot with a little. Yeah. Because he had a little and he made this, you know, this great, brilliant uh, story mm -hmm. full of memorable characters. Right. So the moment of truth. I think, I think probably we all saw this one coming, what our number one spot was. Yeah. But, uh, do you want do you want to go first or shall I? You go first. Uh, well, obviously, the best Quentin Tarantino film, as as everyone should believe, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's it is uh, an infectiously joyful film. It's a, a film about being in love with movies about being part of something kind of genuinely magical you know even if you're not recognized all the time you know but sometimes you get those moments where people acknowledge that you are part of something and that's what mm. the film is trying to do you know sharon uh hearing people laugh in the theater rick being acknowledged by sharon their work is important even mm. if it's not always recognized and they are part of the dna of hollywood and the dna of film more broadly it's about loving movies, about making movies, about, you know, loving the people who make movies. Mm. It's a kind of thank you note to everyone who never got a thank you note. And it's a love letter to the art form kind of more generally, but not in a kind of a glib referential. Hey, you remember that? It's, it's a day in the life of these people just hanging out and doing guest spots on Western Pilots and going to the theatre recording and charting the everyday contributions make to this industry and this art form as people it's not just oh hey that's sharon tate it's mm. it's showing how kind and insecure and giving and dedicated and truly alive everyone who ever gave anything to movies is it understands why we love movies, watching them, love making them, just being around them, kind of absorbing everything we can. It's it's beautiful, it's funny, it's melancholic, it's exhilarating, it's everything I love about films, filmmaking, condensed into kind of this, this 160 minutes of, of, of pure pleasure. That, that's my, my, my yeah. uh, rapture on this film. Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely number one. It's not even close. It's not even close. Think. You're right. Um, I, I don't really have anything to add. Yeah, you, you put it really well. Um, it's unbridled joy. No, I mean, it's, it's that process of watching it where I was like, oh, that, that was pretty good. Oh, it's maybe a top five. Oh, no, it's one of the best. Oh, no, it's mm. the best Quentin Tarantino movie. Oh, it's one of the best movies of the year. No, it is the best movie of the year. You know, oh maybe I'll put it on my best of the decade list. No, it's mm. it's on the list. 
oh, it's in the top 10 of the list. It, you know, it's, it's just a film that kind of grows in my estimation every time I, I think about it or I, I listen to the soundtrack or mm. I, you know, watch it again. It, it, is, it is the gift that keeps on giving. And if Quentin had given us nine death proofs and once upon a time in Hollywood, I would, you know, still hold him in infinitely high regard for just giving mm-hmm. us that, that one beautiful movie. Yeah. So that's that, that's our thoughts on Quentin. I yeah. think. Have you got anything to, to to wrap up? No, that's that's yeah. I feel feel the same way. About that, yeah. That one. And if and if you're one of those people who thinks Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is boring, yeah. watch it again. And, if, you've, and again if you've made it through this uh, two and a half hour podcast, yeah. <laughs> you can make it through Once Upon a Time in Hollywood once more and have fun. Have a good time mm-hmm. with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that's it. I think we've we've gone on. on long enough, and we've you know shouted and waved our hands enough. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in again. Yeah, not sure you. what's happening next week, but something hopefully. All right, something exciting. Uh, signing out from the podcast minds. <laughs>